from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Eh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... You think about things to which you don't have the answers. Whose list is it? It's not your list. It's not my list. They were on the verge of being out of tune... Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. It's a funny thing. All at once, on November 9th last year, old novels with certain kinds of dystopian settings suddenly seemed very relevant and had huge sales upticks. There's George Orwell's 1984, of course, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, and Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. In The Handmaid's Tale, fundamentalist Christian theocrats have taken over the United States, and among other things, they force certain women called handmaids to bear children for infertile couples. So was it a future president bragging about sexual assaults that got people reaching for this book or him saying that women who received abortions must be punished or as president pushing to defund Planned Parenthood? Whatever, now The Handmaid's Tale has been adapted into a TV series for Hulu and it just premiered. It stars Elizabeth Moss as one of the handmaids. There's a window with white curtains. And the glass is shatterproof, but it isn't running away they're afraid of. It's those other escapes. The ones you can open in yourself, given a cutting edge. Or a twisted sheet in a chandelier. I try not to think about those escapes. Thinking can hurt your chances. The Handmaid's Tale has also bubbled into real-life Texas politics. There, legislators recently introduced a bunch of bills to restrict abortions in all kinds of ways. So last month, 12 women wearing the old-fashioned red robes and white bonnets from The Handmaid's Tale protested those bills inside the Texas State Senate chamber. We could not in good conscience ignore this oppression of our reproductive rights. So we stood as a group. Andrea Greer lives in Houston and works as a fundraiser for nonprofit groups, and she was one of those people who protested by dressing up like a character from a novel. Um, I did actually engage with the costume designer from the Hulu production, and ah, her suggestion was if you just Google costume bonnet, you're going <laughs> to find plenty. Yeah. So. That's how the uh, pros do it. So you artsy, literate activists decided this would be a cool idea, and you it looked really cool, I got to say, the photographs of you guys. Um, but did you worry about whether or not the legislators and the other people on the Senate floor were going to get the reference to this, you know, Canadian novel from 1985? Kurt, it would be really easy for me to take a cheap shot at what their educational backgrounds might have prepared them for. So whether or not they understood the finer points – of the literary criticism we were invoking. <laughs> right, right. Um, they, they knew something bad was going on. I have to say, like, the power of the costume, you eventually, I mean, you just really felt like a different person, and it felt very serious and somber. And, and had you ever, in your, in your years as an activist and protester and, and so on, ever done anything this 
artful, uh, let alone having cosplay involved? I have shown up in all sorts of outfits from uh, Republican drag to actual costumes to get access to places, but never have I been part of an action that has so quickly gone viral, um, that has bounced around the internet the way it did, so that even by the afternoon, I immediately, frankly, left the Capitol and drove back to Houston. It's about a 170-mile drive. By the time I was home, I had friends who had sent messages to me saying, did you see what these women did in the Texas legislature today? In fact, I did. <laughs> now, that, of course, accomplished far more than would have been accomplished had we just stood up and shouted. So uh, it ha- it is – I just checked Amazon this morning. It's a, it's a huge bestseller, this novel, and you probably didn't hurt that either. <laughs> um, what, what, uh, what, why do you think? Well, um, the first time I'd read it was 1987 as a 16-year-old who really didn't even have – a political outlook on the world who wasn't comfortable staking out positions on my own body and then reading it now at 46 as someone who has been an activist, um, who's worked in politics, who's worked in the healthcare sphere. Um, it's a very different book when you read it from that perspective. So I imagine there are many people like me who are rereading it and it's harder and harder to read each time because it really is chilling. Margaret Atwood published The Handmaid's Tale in 1985, and she took inspiration from the rise of the Christian right in America during the 1970s and early 80s. It's time for God's people to come out of the closets, out of the churches, and change America! And also the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran. But another much older inspiration for Margaret Atwood was the story of a real-life woman in 17th century New England named Mary Webster. Seven p.m. I was hanged for living alone, for having blue eyes and sunburned skin, tattered skirts, few buttons, Oh, yes, and breasts. The rope was an improvisation. Trust hands, rag in my mouth. With time, they'd have thought of axes. My name's Bridget Marshall. I'm an associate professor of English here at UMass Lowell. And I did research on some witchcraft cases that happened before Salem, and one of them was Mary Webster of Hadley, Massachusetts. Hadley is a small, small community of Puritans. Church is pretty central to their lives. There's also absolutely a baseline level of acceptance of and belief in witchcraft, that it's happening, that witches are talking to to the devil, and that the devil is active and walking around in New England causing trouble for the Puritans. 9 p.m. The bonnets come to stare, the dark skirts also, the upturned faces in between, mouths closed so tight they're lipless. I can see down into their eye holes and nostrils. I can see their fear. I can always do a good imitation of the Wicked Witch of the Wizard of Oz any old time. And you're a little dog, too. My name is Margaret Atwood, and I may or may not be related to Mary Webster. 
Some days my grandmother would say we were related to her, and on other days she would deny the whole thing <laughs> because it wasn't very respectable. I was actually trying to write a novel about her, but unfortunately I didn't know enough about the late 17th century to actually be able to really do it. But I did write a long narrative poem called Half-Hanged Mary because she only got half-hanged. 10 p.m. Well, God, now that I'm up here with maybe some time to kill, away from the daily finger work, leg work, work at the hen level, we can continue our quarrel, the one about free will. So January of 1685, Philip Smith is very, very ill. Now, Philip Smith is a leading light of the community of Hadley. He is uh, very involved in the government, very involved in the church, a very well-respected man. And this community says, wait a minute, why is Philip Smith suffering these torments? Well, in the Puritan mind, they don't know what's happening, and they think it must be a witch. If someone who is so good and so pious could be in such pain and be in such torment, there must be a witch involved. And they very quickly draw the line to Mary Webster. Mary's house was right on the highway, and if someone was taking a cart full of hay, for instance, they would say that sometimes their horses wouldn't go past her house, that they would stop. But if the man would go in and beat Mary, that then the horse could pass just fine. So there was this idea that her supernatural powers could be stopped if they somehow physically assaulted her. Based on those earlier examples, they decide that to help Philip Smith so he won't feel so sick anymore, they will go and do something to Mary. Twelve Midnight. My throat is taut against the rope, choking off words and air. I'm reduced to knotted muscle. Blood bulges in my skull. My clenched teeth hold it in. I bite down on despair. Well, you do think about these things off and on for a long time because you think about things to which you don't have the answers. And the thing that we will never know is, how did she make it through the night? What was she doing all night when she was dangling from a tree? You know, what was she thinking about? 3 a.m., I dangle with strength, going out of the wind seethes in my body. I clench my fists. My lungs flail as if drowning. I call on you as a witness. I did no crime. This is a crime I will not acknowledge. Leaves and wind hold on to me. I will not give in. So Cotton Mather, a minister and author, in 1689 publishes Memorable Providences, and it includes a very detailed account of Mary Webster and Actually, I would say even more detailed about Philip Smith, her supposed victim. Mr. Philip Smith, son of virtuous parents, deacon of the church in Hadley, was murdered with a hideous witchcraft that filled all those parts of New England with astonishment. Cotton Mather's Memorable Provinces is 1689. 1692 is the Salem Witch Hysteria. They put 150 people in jail and murder 20 of them for accusations of witchcraft. 
memorable providences sets a lot of the stage for, for what happens in Salem, for that hysteria, right? It's feeding into this idea, witches are among us, look at the terrible things they're doing. Men like Philip Smith, good Christian men, are being killed by witches, quite literally. To me, it's one of the foundational moments in, in American history, the Salem trials. And the foundational part of it is you can't trust your neighbors. So, you know, think of what the bad thing is to be at the moment. They might secretly be one of those bad things. So it isn't until much later, in fact, 1767, that we have the first mention in any history about her being hanged. And so it's a later historian who gives us that detail. Cotton Mather's line says that they gave disturbance to her. And so what exactly uh, the disturbance was, it's not quite clear. But we do know that she lives uh, 11 years after the uh, Philip Smith incident. So she definitely, no matter how much she was disturbed, whether it was by hanging or something else, she still survived him. Six a.m. Sun comes up, huge and blaring. I would like to say that my hair turned white overnight, but it didn't. Instead, it was my heart, bleached out like meat in water. Also, I'm about three inches taller. Don't say I'm not grateful. Most will only have one death. I will have two. Yeah, so The Handmaid's Tale is dedicated to Mary Webster because she is an example of a female person wrongly accused. But she's slightly a symbol of hope because they didn't actually manage to kill her. She she made it through. Well, I think it's important to note that Mary Webster did not have a voice in her church. She did not have a voice in her government. She did not have anyone who was uh, going to look out for her rights. And I think there's resonances here today where women do have more rights, but if we don't stand up and continue to defend those rights, we will lose many of them. So some of what is being said by lawmakers today sounds an awful lot like the 17th century to me. I just read that somebody is questioning any sort of support for for pregnant women. You know, what's that about? I'm not sure what The gentleman is talking about when he talks about mandates. What mandate in the Obamacare bill does he take issue with? Would the gentleman yield? Yeah, sure. What about men having to purchase prenatal care? Why should I pay, says says the man, why should men pay for, for pregnant women? That seems to me exceptionally ignorant. Uh, but it is, it is typical of the moment in which we, we live. Eight a.m. When they came to harvest my corpse, open your mouth, close your eyes, cut my body from the rope. Surprise, surprise, I was still alive. I fell to the clover, breathed it in, and bared my teeth at them in a filthy grin. You can imagine how that went over. Now I only need to look out at them through my sky-blue eyes, They see their own ill will staring them in the forehead and turn tail. Before, I was not a witch. But now, I am one.
The first three of the ten episodes of The Handmaid's Tale are out on Hulu now. Thanks to Kristen de Mercurio, who read excerpts from Atwood's poem. You can hear her reading the whole thing at our website, studio360.org. Coming up, there is one in every class. Class clown used to save his best stuff for lunchtime when you were drinking your milk. And he'd try to make the milk come out your nose. How George Carlin knew as a kid he'd become a comic. And his fondness for the words that kids are really not supposed to say. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. America was a source of inspiration to me when I was a kid. Ray Davies has had a soft spot for America for a long time. Not just the music, but the culture of cowboys and Indians, good guys, bad guys. The good guys were clearly definitively different to the bad guys. There's an obviousness about it, but I found quite quaint, really, and safe. But of course, when I got here, it was a bit different. In the 1960s, as the driving force of the kinks, he fused American R&B and early rock and roll with completely British storytelling. And from the 1970s on, for three decades, Ray Davies lived off and on in New York City and New Orleans. He was living in New Orleans in 2004, in fact, when a mugger shot him in the leg. And after that, he went to the U.K. to recover and never moved back to America. But I still love the place, and um, it's part of me that's still there. And, it's, and I think you hear it in the music, too. I just got back from a walk down the square to the local Kentucky to see what Ray Davies' new solo album is called Americana, which was also the title of his memoir, which came out in 2012. Since he has been focused on these United States so much, we asked him to tell us about some of the American songs that have meant a lot to him over the years. They're really rocking in Boston. Uh, this is a Chuck Berry song called Sweet Little Sixteen. Deep in the heart of Texas and round the Frisco Bay. You've got two or three different rhythms going on at the same time. You're, you've got you know, a big band thing, obviously, and you've got the chug chug from Chuck Berry. I think that's that man Johnson on keyboard, playing bebop type fills. It's a combination of great, great rhythms and separate them and they'll sound radically different but put them together it just rolls along beautifully Cause they'll be rocking on bandstand in Philadelphia PA Deep in the heart of Texas Around the Frisco 
first saw it on a theatre film called Jazz on a Summer's Day. I think I was about 13. It was about the Newport Jazz Festival, and Chuck Berry was like a radical guest to have on. He came. He was playing with the Louis Armstrong band as a backup band. And you could tell that a lot of the players, jazz players, were saying, what is this? What is this, this guy? Kind of parodied what he was doing and slyly smiled at one another. But he kept dancing across the stage in his own way, playing incredible bum notes as well, which I found fascinating. Bum note is a bad note, wrong note, whatever. But I think it's one of the essences of rock and roll. They were on the verge of being out of tune, but it, he kept it going. He was a beautiful player. I'm not saying he's an untidy player, but he just wasn't afraid to push the limits with bending the strings and all, all, all for the groove. It's great stuff. Sweet little dick. one of those things I constantly carry with me. I think songs like Sweet Little 16 give you a chance to refocus. It's a touchstone with what music inspires you to be a musician. I'm in the bumble, it's the one across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just bring it off the wall. I know you there, but I just had a call. I wanted to play this track it's by Blondie. It's called Hanging on the Telephone. It's the antithesis of what I was saying about Chuck Berry, where everything floats together in different rhythms. This is an out-and-out pop record. They're all playing on the 8-beat. They made the, the album Parallel Lines in the same studio we were recording low budget in at the time. It was a place called the Power Station. Blondie were in Studio 2, we were in Studio 1. And uh, we used to listen to one another's work. And Debbie and Chris from the Blondie became fairly good friends. And they, they were based in New York in their punk scene. It was all around. It was part of a, a culture that was emerging, coming through at CBGB's, which I found very energising and interesting. Last time I was in New Orleans, I played Voodoo Fest, 2010. And all the great different styles of music were playing. And I went on the stage I played, a band called The Meters came on, and they played Sissy Strut. And to me, that summed up my whole experience of New Orleans. It's not a complicated song, but the groove is incredible. There's no real tune to it, it's just a riff, which is fantastic.
a guy saying, yeah, baby, it's going to be great out there. No fake vocals on it or anything. It's just, we are going to set a piece of rhythm down that you're going to love. And to me, that's as good as any tune. It's very casual in its approach, and New Orleans is a bit like that to me. Just float with the rhythm. But underneath it, there's a, very, there's a tension in the music as well when that snare drum comes down. There's a tension in New Orleans as well at times. I was in New Orleans 2004, walking down the street on a bright sunny day, and I was mugged by a guy. And I chased him and he shot me. He really shot me. I was aware it could happen. I was with a friend a few weeks before and we we saw a guy get shot up uptown and uh, the same that same crack sound you hear is a, a snap sound and fortunately I recovered the poor man I saw get shot a few weeks earlier it didn't happen so many times in America but thankfully I came out the other side you know I recovered for the most part. I kept a very sort of extensive diary while I was in New Orleans and it, Looking at it recently when I was making the record to get source material, I realised I still was a, had an affection for it, and I still do, because the great music and great people. And I, it may be an exotic place, but there's a lot of suffering down there, a lot of hardship, and people get through. It's going back to the city strut. You know, I feel there's, there's an undercurrent there saying bad things could happen, but let's enjoy it while we can. Ray Davies' new album is called Americana. You can hear more of the songs on his playlist that he made for us at studio360.org. Back when the Kinks were first putting out their hit singles, George Carlin was a fairly standard stand-up comic. He wore suits, he kept his hair cut short, and performed on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show and Merv Griffin. And now with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleek, your hippy-dippy weatherman. <laughs> hey, big, what's happening? But as the 1960s became the 60s, the late 60s, Carlin was over 30, but he grew out his hair and beard and started wearing bell-bottoms and began doing material that railed against squares and censors, especially the idea that there were bad words that couldn't be said, back when that was called working blue for comics. This all culminated in 1972 with his seminal comedy album, Class Clown. To tell the story of that album, we've got somebody who worked closely with Carlin. My name is Jerry Hamza. And I was George Carlin's personal manager and best friend for 35 years. And a scholar. My name is Susan Sizer. I'm a professor of anthropology at Indiana University. And I wrote an article entitled On the Uses of Obscenity in Live Stand-Up Comedy, which was published in the Anthropological Quarterly in 2011. And a guy who has probably interviewed more stand-up comedians about stand-up comedy than anyone else ever. My name is Mark Marin. I'm a stand-up comic and host of the podcast WTF. Uh, people always want to know how you get started on this job. I guess they ask musicians, too. 
and actors and everything, but uh, they always want to know how you got started. They say, how did you get started? I say to you, did you always want to be a comedian? Well, not in the womb, but right after that, yes. My brother and I, when we were kids, uh, we used to sit in my bedroom and listen to George Carlin records. Class Clown, that was the one that changed my brain chemistry. Class Clown is when you really do get a chance to kind of uh, work out, you know, because the classroom is the best place. Classroom's best because... Well, no one's allowed to laugh there. And suppressed laughter, you know, is the easiest to get, the most fun. You know, like when you're kneeling in front of a casket. His use of language was so compelling, and his voice was so compelling, and his timing was so meticulous. Class Clown used to save his best stuff for lunchtime when you were drinking your milk. And he'd try to make the milk come out your nose. Huh? Yeah, specifically, there was one beat, I think, on the first track about the kid who passed an entire cheese sandwich through his nose. Sister Annunciata thought it was a miracle, you know? <laughs> come with me, mister. And don't talk to the other boys and girls. That whole riff was, like, it was hilarious. It was just hilarious. George and I used to fly into towns, and we'd rent a tourist from Hertz. And after the show, we'd stay up till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And a lot of material came out of those rides. You know, he'd blow some pot, and then he'd just start coming up with some crazy ideas. What all stand-up comics seem to have in common is a love of the freedom that the genre of stand-up comedy gives them to speak what's on their mind and to make the points about what they observe and see going on around them. There was a generation of guys that started with, you know, Lenny, uh, you know, Mortsall, Newhart, um, Shelley Berman, you know, guys that had specific point of views that weren't doing, you know, tired shtick, who were saying things or at least speaking for themselves. And I think, you know, Carlin was the great legacy of that and, and took it to a whole other level. The culture was changing. And George was making, before the culture changed, $10,000 a week as a tuxedo stand-up comedian in Vegas. And he would tell his wife, I can't do this anymore. It's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't do it. And he grew his hair out, and uh, he started... Uh, doing uh, some of these more political pieces. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. It's a nice musical name, Muhammad Ali. He's back at work again. He's being allowed to work once again, Muhammad Ali. He wasn't for a while, as you know. For about three and a half years, they didn't let him work. Of course, he had an unusual job, beating people up. (laughs) It's a strange calling, you know. But it's one you're entitled to. Government didn't see it that way. Government wanted him to change jobs. Government wanted him to kill people. He said, no, that's where I draw the line. I'll beat him up, but I don't want to kill him. And the government... (laughs) 
The government said, well, if you won't kill him, we won't let you beat him up. I know he did the Muhammad Ali and he did a few things, but very he, he didn't like to do political humor because he felt like it was here today and gone tomorrow. He, he would rather do, you know, mundane subjects that were going to stick around forever. I love words. I thank you for hearing my words. I want to tell you something about words that I... Uh, I think is important. I love, as I say, they're my uh, work, they're my play, they're my passion. Words are all we have, really. If someone has never heard George Carlin, they're really missing the pleasure that he took in words and in recognizing how important words are in establishing the life that we have here in the U.S. He had gotten arrested at the Frontier Hotel in Vegas for saying shit. And, and what he said was, he says, it's funny, you know, you can smoke a little of it, you just can't say it. So uh, he gets fired, and he always sort of had a knife out for people that were going to uh, control his language. And one day he started thinking, you know, he did a million of these television shows like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and a ton of Johnny Carsons. And he uh, started thinking about, gee, I wonder what words you can say on television. I'm going to try it out in a piece. There are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. You know, the seven words you can never say on television was just spectacular for 13-year-olds or 12-year-olds. My brother was 10. Like, it was one of those things that I memorized, you know, that run of them. I, I obviously can't say it here. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? <laughs> Those are the heavy seven. Those are the ones that'll infect your soul, curve your spine, and keep the country from winning the war. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Wow. The most common use of obscenity in stand-up comedy is to get people to laugh. Because what it does is it makes them relax. It makes them feel that suddenly we're off the record. We're talking colloquially, we're talking casually, but what he was doing was shining a spotlight on those words. You know, he talks about how, you know, I started wondering about the list. Whose list is it? It's not your list. It's not my list. Who makes up this list? Who polices this list? Tits doesn't even belong on the list, you know? Yeah. It's such a friendly sounding word. Sounds like a nickname, right? Hey, Tits, come here, man. Hey, Tits. You know, George hated TV. He, he'd write stuff, and a censor would come in and knock it off. And George and authority did not mix, and that's how he looked at censors, like authority. You know, in order to be a comic, you, you do have to have a fundamental distrust, if not outright anger towards authority. That's sort of why we do what we do. Uh, it, it's just innate in some of us. 
that was what was so exciting about what Carlin did in Class Clown. I, I really see him as giving comics the confidence to do cultural commentary in a kind of freeform, solo environment. I think what I learned from Carlin is that you could really explore whatever you're talking about as a comic and take your time doing it as long as you you know keep the momentum going and keep the laughs uh, in there that you could you could sort of really take things apart and and put things together in, in a long form way that you know you could be a philosopher you could uh, change the way people think about certain things you could uh, blow people's minds with a new way of thinking about things that were entrenched and you could do it with comedy you know that was that was carlin america america man sheds his waste on thee and hides the pines with billboard signs from sea to oily sea That story was produced by Devin Strolovich at BMP Audio. If you're hearing this on the radio, you can hear a version without those bleeps in the FCC unregulated podcast version of our show. George Carlin's album Class Clown has just been added to the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. To hear more of our features about other inductees, such as Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive or Steve Martin's A Wild and Crazy Guy... Go to studio360.org. Coming up, let's take a close look at theatrical makeup, but not that close. It's very much like looking at a painting in a museum. You never go too close. Right. You really need to step away if you're looking at an impressionistic painting. Broadway makeup designer Angelina Avalon. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. For beautiful lashes, quick as a wink, use Helena Rubenstein's amazing new Mascara Matic. Red Door, the irresistible fragrance from Elizabeth Arden. Skin Do Visible Action by Helena Rubenstein. True Love, a fragrance from Elizabeth Arden. Helena Rubenstein introduces the new color classics. The Power of a Woman. Arden Beauty, a fragrance by Elizabeth Arden. The new Broadway musical War Paint is about the rivalry between two of the 20th century's big cosmetics moguls, Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, who are played on stage by two of Broadway's biggest stars, Christine Ebersole and Patti LuPone. So how each actress is made up for the show is critical because... Cosmetics were at the core of their characters' beings, not just something they wore, but something they practically invented and certainly evangelized about. The woman who signed on to the daunting task of makeup designer for War Paint is Angelina Avalon. She's designed the makeup for Broadway productions of Cabaret, The Little Mermaid, The Color Purple, Julius Caesar, and about a hundred other shows. And I 
really mean 100. That's not just a number I'm pulling out of my hat. She is here with me now. Angelina, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, So uh, for those of us who've never been on a Broadway stage or a big theater stage, is theatrical makeup the same stuff that you wear or my wife wears, you know, on on a regular normal day walking down the street? Most of it is a different thing because it has to serve a different purpose. Right. The makeup has to last. The only opportunity an actor has for touch-ups is the intermission. So the ma- once the makeup is applied, it has to stay on. You have to make sure that it doesn't sweat off. The eyeliner has to be perfect. Oftentimes, we use waterproof eyeliners, waterproof lipsticks, depending if the actor has kissing scenes on stage. Uh uh-huh. I never thought of that, of course, yeah. Um, it's interesting because, of course, you're not seeing them close up. I'm three feet away from you, and so that requires a certain kind of makeup. But from 50 or 100 or 200 feet away, it's a whole different thing, right, how you apply makeup? It's a whole different thing. What's tricky is that the actor applies the makeup in the dressing room. Really? The actor is three feet away from the mirror. Right, and so there's nobody doing it for her or him. Occasionally, in the in the case of... The monster in Young Frankenstein or <laughs> yeah. Wicked, you will have a yeah. makeup artist designated to you to help right, you with right. your, your green makeup. Yeah. Um, in the case of Helena Rubinstein, Patti LuPone, and Elizabeth Arden, and Christine Ebersole, they have to learn their own makeup, how wow. to apply their own makeup. They have to learn their makeup plot and apply their own makeup. Huh. And and so you, I see Patti LuPone on stage. She looks normal, beautiful, Patti LuPone. If I, if I was with her in that makeup up close, she would look weird and clownish, right? I mean, stage makeup doesn't look like yes, real, the real thing up absolutely. close. Absolutely. Right? And it has to. It has to in order to read. It's very much like looking at a painting in a museum. You never go too close. Right. You really need to step away. If you're looking at an impressionistic painting, you have to step away. Right depending on the painting, and look at it um, in its context. The and same thing with the actors. So it's a little bit like a microphone, which amplifies the voice. This You're kind of amplifying the expressions, I guess. Yes, we are. What may look fantastic in the dressing room may just not read at all on stage or may read from the first five rows, but not from the back of the house. Right. You have to also find the balance so it's not grotesque looking from the third row. Right, right. So you have to find the balance. And what I normally do is walk into the theater, look at the orchestra, walk to the back of the orchestra, left and right of the house, and then I'll go up in the mezzanine and really sit in different places in the balcony just to see how everything reads and what the lighting does. And also, the lighting paints the faces as well. Right. Because it casts shadows. And unless you study what your lighting designer is doing and how he's painting the faces and what those shadows do to the face, you won't be able to determine what's correct right. and, and what's appropriate. And, of course, the lighting people use colors as well. Sometimes you've picked out the perfect shade of red lipstick after a month of searching and everybody's in love with the lipstick and you get the actor on stage and the lipstick looks brown or just nothing. Right. You must get in fights with lighting directors all the time. Well, you try to make friends with the lighting designer. (laughs) I'll bet. Um, So somebody calls you up and says, oh, we've got this show, War Paint. Uh, It's about Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden. You want to work on it? Um, Do you then get a script? The design process always begins with the story itself. I do read the script. 
I research the period. I research the characters. In the case of Rubinstein and Arden, I look at photographs of the real women. I look at photographs of the actors. Right. So you, you do this research. You look at old pictures of, in this case, these real-life women and presumably their ads, Elizabeth Arden ads. So you look at the ads. You look at illustrations of the products. Hopefully, you try to find the actual products. You Google. Like you, antique versions? Like antique versions. Really? You know, there are collectors out there. And you buy those and, and you use them? And you can find, you can't use them. I'm fascinated by this. So you find somebody who owns these antique uh, makeups and you just pay them to look at their stuff? You don't even like use it? I don't use it. I look at the stuff. I match the products. Right. You can't use them. They're, you know, they smell, they're rancid, right. but they're like a hundred years old, right. some of this product. But it gives you a sense of what it was. Sensitive. So you, you do all this research. You look at all these pictures. You, you, buy, you buy this hundred-year-old makeup, and then you create some kind of guide that travels with the show? And then I create a makeup chart for each actor. I actually sit down and I draw a makeup chart for each character their entire show if that character appears in like five different scenes. So act two, scene two. Absolutely. And I track every single change. And if they have to change lipstick, I track where they change that lipstick. Is it in the basement? Downstairs in the basement? Is it in the wings? Who hands them the lipstick? How much time they have? Everything is perfectly timed. And do you do you write? I mean, is it obviously you can't write? You know, I don't know. Uh, I do. I actually take what, you, take makeup and I I take a, a face chart. Yeah. A large face chart. I take the makeup. I use a brush and I paint. I paint by a face chart, or like a little drawing of a of, a, a of little a human drawing face. of a human face. Huh. Sometimes I'll draw the face of the actor with the with the colors on the little with drawing. With the colors. Huh. I will take a brush, I'll use different mediums, and I will paint. I will paint the lip shape, I'll paint the eye shape, the colors, I'll use the actual colors, I'll make a little palette on the side of the sheet, and I'll number and write down what these products are, and I'll do a step-by-step. If I have to, if the actor is having trouble remembering, I'll do step one is this, step two is this, and step three and four, and... Here we have a complete chart. And then we practice and practice and practice until we perfect it. I'm so fascinated by these actual paper artifacts that exist. I want to collect those. They sound cool. Because after being Helena Rubinstein for uh, five months, Patti LuPone's thing must be like an interesting smudged up collectible. It's a little map. It's It's a little map. Yeah. You have probably seen um, Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump impressions on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Hello, and thank you for coming. I'd like to start by answering the question that's on everyone's mind. Yes, this is real life. This is really happening. What about that makeup job? It's very successful. Yes, it is. It's very successful. Of course, Alec Baldwin does a great job. Yes. You know, the acting is also very important, but it's very, very successful. Well, but and, and that's it's somewhere between realism and Dr. Seuss, right? Yes, it's it's somewhat heightened. Yeah. Um, and it's a combination of of the hair. Right. So the hair team, the hair designers and the makeup uh, special effects people have done a tremendous job. Yeah. And what about the real guy, our president? Why, why does he look like that? You're an expert on how faces look. I mean, I've been a student of Trump for many years, and those white rings around his eye make me think uh, tanning bed or, or spray tan, right? That's what that comes from? It's possible. I don't know what the answer is. But it's, what do you think It's, the it's possible. Is? I think that people find the look for themselves. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes their brand. Right. And I think in Donald Trump's case, it is his brand. And I think it's something that his creative 
created for himself, and he's so comfortable yeah. that it's become his brand. Right. It's something that he's done for the past 30 years, and he's just so used to yeah. the look. Yeah. Do makeup designers get Tonys? No, not in the theater. Huh. They do get they Oscars, do, right? They, do in, they do in film and television. Yeah. Are you and your profession trying to get the Tony people to start giving awards to the likes of you? Or would you just win every one every year? I have not petitioned anyone. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it would be nice if hair and makeup are also recognized. Right. Should be. In the theater. Yes, I agree. Angelina Avalon, I am so much more fascinated by your job than I ever, ever expected to be. Thank you for sharing it with me. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Angelina Avalon is the makeup designer on the new musical War Paint, which is on Broadway now at the Nederlander Theater. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our interim executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor... Andrew Adam Newman. The technical director... Louis Mitchell. And our producers are... Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our intern, for now, is... Max Gibson. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. A century ago, Native Americans had pretty much one escape from the dreariness of reservation life, joining Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. They got to see the world, but they also had to play Indian for white audiences. They expect me to be a chief, so I have to present myself stoic or whatever they're looking for. I give them all that. The legacy of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.